0: Welcome in to another episode of the Dream Preview podcast. It's the NFL offseason is quietly coming to a close. Edition of the Dream Preview, and yes, in exactly 2 weeks recording right now at 4:30 at the pregame studios on a fine Thursday afternoon. In exactly 2 weeks, two Thursdays from now will be the NFL season beginning in earnest, the NFL Hall of Fame game. Steelers and Cowboys, by the way, a line-out now for that game. The Steelers are a one-point favorite in the Hall of Fame game versus the Cowboys, but there's going to be a lot more NFL action to talk about, a lot more NFL wagers to be made, not only in the preseason, but in the season proper and in the playoffs and in the Super Bowl and beyond. Well, maybe just till the Super Bowl, then next year. And we have the guy to do it. We have the guy you want to hear talking about chopping it up With NFL handicapping and NFL betting, we have Steve Fezzik for you guys. And, you know, he's Steve Fezzik. He's going to do what he has to do. He has a best bet that he says if he loses this bet, and if you lose the bet along with us, show him the ticket, meet him up in Vegas, show him the ticket, he will buy you a dinner any place you like, Bacchanal Buffet, any place you like. If this bet loses, he doesn't think it's going to lose. I tend to agree with him. Make sure to check it out. Then we do have another best bet from Diamond Dave Esler. He's going to get into college football. And then we have straight out of Vegas, the NBA Finals just wrapped up. Who would you pick if you had your pick of the litter of any NBA player age considered? Kevin Durant, 32. Giannis, 26. Might be a mitigating factor. Who would you pick if you had the number one pick in a redraft of the NBA? We tossed it up with the great R.J. Bell and, of course, Jonas Knox. Hanging in with us on Straight Out of Vegas. Also, from Straight Out of Vegas, a lot of Aaron Rodgers talk right now heading into training camp. Will he be there? Won't be? I'm not sure. RJ Bell, the great RJ Bell, has a great take on it. He puts the Aaron Rodgers story into perspective from Straight Out of Vegas. Check that out. Without further ado, let's bring him in. Steve Fezzik, we recorded this yesterday afternoon. The great Steve Fezzik and I will chop up our final reactions to the NBA Finals, and we dive deep into the NFL. Like I just said, it's coming up two weeks from today, the Hall of Fame game. And Fezzik is a specialist. He's a specialist in a lot of things. He's an especially special specialist in NFL preseason betting. If you follow him like I have for years, incredibly profitable time of year to be following and listening to the wise words of Steve Fezzik when we're talking about the NFL preseason and, of course, like I mentioned, a best bet, a semi-guaranteed best bet. At least he'll guarantee you a dinner if it loses and you meet up with him in Vegas. In the Olympics, right around the corner, let's get into it. The great Steve Fezzik. NBA post-mortem
1: off of the Milwaukee Bucks victory. Several things to talk about. Let me start out with all this talk about the Milwaukee Bucks dynasty. Stop. Just Stop. We had one of the strangest years ever in the NBA where of the 10 best players in the NBA in the semifinals, we were down to one. One of them playing at, at a certain point in time because of attrition, because of injuries and the like. And even the players that were playing, not necessarily close to 100% like James Harden and LeBron and Anthony Davis. So someone had to win. And Phoenix and Milwaukee were really the beneficiaries of all of those injuries, and credit to Milwaukee getting it done. But, uh, Mackenzie, would you not agree? We're not going to put an asterisk on this year, but this wasn't even Milwaukee's best team that got the
0: title. I would disagree with that. I think this is their best team that got the title. I think just the addition of drew holiday and the subtraction of Eric Bledsoe was that marginal difference that made them that much better, but they weren't that much better. They didn't win the title this year because they were so much better than in years past. They won it because of their path. Thankfully for them, you know, they lost, I mean, their opponents lost Kyrie Irving and James Hard- Harden, at various points. Trey young was out even when Giannis was out. So that helped. So when it comes to asterisks, I think you could put an asterisk on every title or zero titles. It doesn't matter. It just means an explanation. And when I think of NBA history, I think of all the explanations that comes with it. So congratulations, have the parade, celebrate it. Maybe in fifty years you'll do it again, but I don't think they're by far the best team in the league. In fact, I don't think they're the best team in the league, and neither do the odds for next year. They, their odds improved. They went from ten to one to nine to one. You know, overnight after you know clinching the title but they're still third favorite. They're 9 to 1. The Nets, Lakers are ahead of them. The Warriors for some reason are right next to them. So, no, I don't think I don't think they're a dynasty in the making or anything like that, but they were the best team remaining for sure and they deserve it. Absolutely. And I certainly
1: have always touted Giannis in recent years him being my number one player in the NBA. I had him worth seven points in the NBA playoffs. You know, I got to think in terms of maybe that's not enough and here's why number 2 player middleton from Milwaukee i think he's a pretty capable number 2 above average but nothing special drew holiday eh it depends on which game he plays i guess if he's ripping the way the ball away from booker in game 5 well he's an all-star but as far as um how the, he stacks up as a number 3 i think right in the middle of the league maybe
0: maybe slightly above average again once you go past those guys okay i have to stop you name right. a third player that's not named Kyrie Irving <laughs> on any team that's close to Drew Holiday that's close uh, that's a good point okay um, maybe the celtics when they had kemba walker no i don't i don't even think it's close i think drew holiday is a huge huge number 3 who's who's close
1: yeah i mean you bring up a good point kemba walker's clearly you know, superior to Drew Holiday. But you're right, back in New Orleans, Drew, Drew Holiday was, you know, arguably, you know,
0: right there. He should be, no, I mean, two. like, the Lakers' number three is Kyle Kuzma. They're about to trade him.
1: The oh,
0: Blazers' he... number three is Yusuf Nurkic. Like, who... The Dallas' is number three is Tim Hardway Jr., who most people don't know. You know, shout-out to Tim Hardway, one of the great Chicago ball handlers of all time. His dad. But... I, I think you're off here. I think Drew is a great number three if you stack him up with other number threes in the league.
1: I'd rather have Nurkic, but you're you're right. I he's I, I will go ahead and recant and maybe I'm I'm overreacting to his four for twenty playoff game when he just kept shooting. But absolutely. But then when once we go past him, let's go four or five. All right, Brooke Lopez. Uh, capable starter, and then uh, P.J. Tucker for your number five, and then that bench without – I can't pronounce his name – DiVincenzo. Um, That's right. He he actually was out for the year, yeah, Dante uh, DiVincenzo. So if you look at that playoff roster, once you get past the three – My goodness, for a Milwaukee team that was super deep for years and they covered all these games and had such a great point differential because of their depth, all of a sudden this is a team that won with very limited depth. So, But kudos to Giannis. He got it done. Let's talk about the fact that Milwaukee covered, and I do have Milwaukee seven points better than the average team, Phoenix six better, so I have Milwaukee one point better. Uh, Would you agree with those final ratings, McKenzie? Yes, I would. You know, one thing, a lot of people are coming out and saying, well, Milwaukee's clearly superior to Phoenix. I think if you look back, though, in games 4, 5, and 6, Phoenix certainly had opportunities to win all of those games if things had broken right. Look no further than the free-throw shooting. Giannis, in the final uh, game 6, he goes ahead and shoots 17 for 19 from the line. Well, if he would have gone 13 for 19, his regular season average – then all of a sudden Milwaukee wins by three, basically their home court advantage. And if Giannis had shot what he shot in the playoffs and gone 11 for 19, 58%, then Milwaukee wins by one. Well, we're not even sure they really even win. So really the cover by Milwaukee completely was Giannis suddenly making his free throws at a rate that would be consistent with one of the best free throw shooters in the league. Although... Um, what do you think about that, Mackenzie? Is that clutch? Is that variance? Uh, what went on with those free throw shooting in Game Six?
0: I definitely think it's variance, but it's definitely more than that, in my opinion. I mean, it's cool. It's it's coolness. It's something that you that you get over time. I, I think I remember my AP psychology teacher telling us right before we had our presentations, if you do this presentations a bunch of times, you're going to be relaxed when you do it. When you're in those big moments, eventually it happens. I, mean, I don't think his his form got any better, you know, there's still problems there if you talk to, you know, shooting experts, but his coolness was on display, and it was amazing. 17 for 19 in the biggest game of his life.
1: Yes, and, you know, I've been hypercritical of Ben Simmons and everyone, all the media guys talk about, oh, he works really hard on his free throws, and I just don't believe it. I mean, I, I use the example... Um, a uh, friend of the show, uh, Brad Powers, was a free throw shooting champion back in high school. And I think you could break all of his fingers, put them in casts, and he could go out there and shoot 70% with enough practice. And that's really what it <laughs> is. It's just practice um, in order to be able to make it. I'll use like a pro golfer analogy. So there's no one on the pro, on the PGA Tour that can't putt well. Every single putter is really good and why well they wouldn't be there because putting's so important if they couldn't but secondly it's uh, just a matter of practice that even these guys that can absolutely bomb the ball that aren't that good at putters they they learn well if I want to make my Uh, my tour card and keep my tour card. I'm going to have to learn to putt. So they do. And so what happens is that when there's no sense of urgency and a team doesn't force a player to be able to shoot free throws, a baseball team doesn't force a player to be able to bunt against the shift, they never acquire those skills.
0: I have a a proposition for you. Let me pull up Giannis' stats. All right, so this season he shot, let's see. uh, So he shot 68% this season, a little bit below his, his career average, over under... 70% 70% for Giannis free throw next regular season. Does the monkey off his back set settle his nerves on a permanent basis? No. I'll go under
1: because the title will I, – I saw Rocky three Fat and happy. <laughs> yeah, Rocky three. when – welcome to the Muppet Show with Rocky Balboa. Uh, you could talk about being hungry all, all you want, but once you get that title, I think that it's going to be a very celebratory – um year in Milwaukee and I don't see Giannis improving and also the trend is your friend obviously he was trending downward before that game 6 in the playoffs only shooting below 60% in the playoffs so I would go under the 70%. Do we we have a bet on that?
0: Yeah, I gave it I gave it gave you an over under so I'll take either side. It was pretty even. I actually looked up uh, Shaq when he won his first championship Next year, career-low free-throw percentage, 52. Now, they're not the same guy, but if there's one comp that everyone wants to use right now for Giannis Antetokounmpo, it would be Shaquille O'Neal. Poor free-throw shooter, best player in the world, possibly. But when they were important, he made yes. them. Yes, yes, exactly right. <laughs> I do think
1: there's something to be said for the tough physicality players like the Shacks, like the Giannis's in the playoffs, because all of a sudden, the NBA is such a soft league, and so many fouls are called, and frankly... They let them play a little bit more in the playoffs. And so being a tough interior player, I think, is more valuable, especially later in the playoffs. Let's talk about the total a little in game six, because I think it was a unique opportunity, a perfect storm, if you will, to play under. I know people can come out and say, great, Fez, you're past posting again. <laughs> well, you know, I said it with the McGregor-Poirier fight. It's not a pass post when it's my game of the year and it wins. So I did have Poirier as my UFC fight of the year. And I had game six NBA under as my NBA playoff game of the year. And I thought it was the perfect storm in that games one through five went over three, one and one. So the public is watching all the games and they're seeing scoring, scoring, scoring. So the oddsmakers know they're getting beat on the overs, and they're going to deal an inflated line. Game 5 total was right around 220. Oddsmakers opened up Game 6, 223, a huge adjustment. Now you could say, now wait a minute, Game 5 had 242 points. But in that game, the team shot 27 for 47 for just an obscene three-point shooting rate. And if you normalize that for a decent shooting rate of just below 40%, there would have only been 215 points, and if only 215 points got scored in Game 5, the betters are well aware, Game 6, that the scoring decreases remarkably, drastically, and because of that, we would have seen a total drop from 220 down to like 218. Very rare you're going to get a situation where total totals off by 5 points, and I can make a case that that's really what it was off by. I went ahead and hit the under 223 at Open, leaked down throughout the week, came down to 220 and a half. And frankly, never in doubt, both teams looked really tight to start quarter one. Did you not think so, Mackenzie?
0: No, I, I also had that play. Great play. And it was 2-2 after about like three or four minutes. And the only question then was when and if to hedge. Halftime worked out. I, I didn't win all, all the hedgebacks, but halftime over one twelve and a half and a half just got there, which was cool.
1: You know, one thing in the series, it did not work in game five, but there certainly was a trend for five of the six games. I believe this all hit that the first half went under and the third quarter went over and that this third quarter, I think, had 65 points. So game five, the third quarter, did stay under. But every other game, the third quarter just went crazy despite um, some low-scoring first halves. And I did read that Milwaukee offensively does um, go ahead and basically – uh, run their best stuff to start the second half, so that would tie in with that third quarter over. Something to look at for Milwaukee next year in terms of um, certainly their um, proficiency on offense to start the second half.
0: We never advise betting blindly anything, but this is a system that is based on this game. That I got to look it up because I'm gonna. I feel it's gonna be seventy percent or something. If it's the highest total of the series and it's game six or seven. You got to go under, right? You got to go under. If all the money, the millions of dollars bet on both sides of the aisle for five games says this total should be lower, but for some reason it's the highest total and it's historically a spot that's 56% to the under, where totals are historically four points less than game one. I feel like next next year we got to keep that in the back of our minds. Yeah, you talk about totals being four points less than
1: game one. I know you've done all that research while I speak. You can pull that up. But I believe, uh, based upon what I saw from games one to five, you see the total slight slowly leaking down. Not much at all, meaning game five is being dealt about a point lower, maybe one to two points lower than game one. But then game six gets dealt significantly lower, and then game seven even lower than that. So massive adjustments by the odds makers and the betters. but those adjustments, Mackenzie, even with those huge reductions, not enough, right? Because the results, the games go under. Yes,
0: 50 56% unders in game six, 62% in game seven. If you look at the margin, about two points in game six, about five points in game seven. Like you said, after the adjustment, there's still about, you know, two, two points off in game six and five points off in game seven. People just, you know, they base what they've just seen, but that's why history is your friend. The trend is your friend. If you look at what's happened historically, yes, these five games say X, but Y is around the corner. And we got to keep it in mind. And, You want to make a huge bet on the under you're always worried
1: one overtime is going to train wreck you so i'm a big believer in diversification and one way to diversify especially in a series like this where you can you saw the first halves being so much lower scoring you can play the first quarter under 55 you can play the first half under 109 you can play the first half team totals under in other words get at that under uh live wagering When they're heading into the fourth quarter, instead of playing the game under, play the fourth quarter under, and that way you've got a diversified portfolio. You can bet more because you have more wagers um, associated with those teams as we go along. So that is something that I did employ in this game.
0: NBA Finals 2021, first quarter, 51 points on average scored. Second quarter, 53. Third quarter, 63, a trend you were talking about, and fourth quarter, 52, and I think Correct me if I'm wrong. These are usually lined about 55, 55 and a half. So first quarters and fourth quarters unders were the way to go this series.
1: Yeah, and the market was slowly catching up to that, that we were seeing first quarter 54 and a half, second quarter 53 and a half, third quarter 56 and a half, fourth quarter 56 was the numbers in games, pretty much five, six, and seven. I really can't speak to what they were to start to game one. So the market was aware of the slow start. Another thing to keep our eyes on, was um, just the fact that there was a series history. The games in Phoenix were going over. Now, part of that was that games one and two early in the series were in Phoenix, but we did see a 223, a 226, and a 242. All of them go over in Phoenix, and then a Milwaukee average of only 212 for the three games that were in Milwaukee, all three of which what did go under.
0: I believe the same thing happened with the Nets-Bucks series, where everything in Brooklyn went over. Seventh, I mean, Game Seven was because of overtime, and everything in in Milwaukee went under. Those crowd, that crowd is that crowd is raucous. Hard to shoot in that gym.
1: Yes, let's um, let's talk about a little bit about the media. You know, more and more sports betting is becoming huge in the media, and I got to tell you, I am getting sick. Uh, one rant here of so many good hosts. And sports experts have become sports betting experts, and they're even being introduced as professional sports bettors. And then I hear them talk, and they say so many things, Mackenzie, that to to quote the great Doug Polk, um, who's, who's a professional poker player, um, someone was claiming to be a professional poker player, and that's where he got all his money. And Doug Polk responded, "Yeah, and I'm a freaking astronaut." <laughs> and that, you know, that's my reaction. One of the things that has become prevalent: people talk about money lines all the time, and I hear, "Oh, you know, you can play um, uh, th- this. This team is a big dog. Like live wagering plus five hundred on the money line." And they're constantly talking about wagering on the money lines. No pro better. That I know of bets money lines as a staple of their bets they're making. And why? Because the bid ask spread is insanely unfair uh, because the house preserves its hold of 4.54%, or a lot of times in live wagering, at 7%. They charge minus 115 on average. So by the time a team becomes a prohibitive favorite, it literally is a situation. Minus 1,000. Bet 10 to win a dollar if you want the favorite. The dog will be like plus 550. There's just too much of a difference. There's no value on either side. So I would say that's one of the telltale tells, if you will, that someone is not a pro better when they're constantly talking about playing big underdog money lines as a main staple of their betting. Let's talk a little bit. NFL preseason is almost upon us. We're two weeks away. And. I want to go ahead and comment on this game. Hall of Fame game, Pittsburgh's laying one, total's 34. And we threw the odds makers under the bus with how they got the WNBA game wrong, the total wrong, lining it at 250, basically copying. Well, I think they're copying a good number here, but nevertheless, I'm going to throw them under the bus because I saw four other books open after not putting a number up on the Hall of Fame game all summer long. One book puts up the Westgate to their credit. They put up Pittsburgh minus minus one thirty-four, and every book that I've seen has put up one and 34 as well. And it just goes to show Mackenzie, these guys are not doing any work. They're not doing any handicapping because if they were doing anything at all, some of them would have made a total in that game at 32 and some of them would have made 36. And if everyone else was dealing 34, they'd, they'd say, you know, we make it 36. So we'll deal 35 or even 34 and a half. We'll deal some opinion. nah, they don't even bother. They're they're not doing any of that work. They're just copying, I, I
0: firmly believe. you. Would you agree? Yeah, and I think it's an excellent point that it's the Hall of Fame game. If this was the Super Bowl and the lines were the same everywhere, you'd be like, okay, well, there's billions of dollars on each side. The lines are going to be shaped up. This is an opener for the Hall of Fame game. I mean, take me back, Fez. If this was 1997, I imagine you could walk and see one place at 30 and one place at 35, just different opinions for something we really have no idea where it's going to land. I mean, don't tell me that the end product of some crazy algorithm with every factor possible for the Steelers 98 player active players and the Cowboys 98 active players for the Hall of Fame game spit out 32 and that's the god truth number no it's just a guess it's yeah.
1: just a guess you wouldn't see 30 and 35 but you'd certainly see 33 and 35 or 34 and a half and you know i still remember i had a you know professional veteran handicapper that i respect um and in an NCAA tournament, the Stardust put up a number and he texted me. He's like, hey, Chris is seven and a half, and they got ten on Oklahoma State over at the at you know at the Stardust. So there were differences like that all the time. And that does come up in sports now where there the numbers aren't readily available on the screen to look at, but it's just remarkable to me how everyone is just copying. I did want to comment a few things. Now, normally you'd say, who cares if you deal pick one, one and a half on an NFL game. It's all pretty close to the same. Well, that's not the case in preseason. The memo is out. No one wants to go to overtime. So one and two are actually very important numbers in NFL preseason, and the one in particular, I'm going to make the case that the NFL one in preseason is worth more than $0.10, and I think it's worth more than the three. Because when a team is down seven, every NFL team, if they score, goes for it now. After they score, landing the game on one, it's a lock. (laughs) Or possibly, I guess, it could get to two if they get the uh, two-point conversion and the other team could come down and kick the field goal and win. So that one is so important in the NFL now. So if you had to choose in your preseason betting, and I love preseason betting. It's one of my most profitable areas I would always lay the money line minus one twenty versus minus one lay a dollar ten, and laying two and a half, no thank you. I am not laying two and a half on an NFL preseason game because, like I said, uh, you're up seven at the end of the game. If the other team scores, you're dead. You lose, and it's just too much to give up. And so the rules of betting in the NFL during the regular season, how much these points are worth, do not apply. One uh technique you may well want to do is if a game is lined at two and a half and you like the favorite, you might well look to lay three or even three and a half and get a juiced up VIG price at plus a dollar, say minus three and a half, plus a dollar 20, because it's so unlikely versus a normal regular season game that the game's going to land three. I'm not saying three is a dead number. Three is going to hit, you know, favorites, favored by three is probably going to win by three about 5% of the time but certainly not 10% of the time like they do in the regular season. So I would um, strongly advise you to adjust your betting accordingly.
0: Any lean or like on Cowboys plus one versus Steelers in a couple weeks? Haven't
1: done my work yet on all the preseason um, And I I guess no one else has either because no one has seemingly taken a bet on that game yet. So uh, I'll be going through, you know, all the teams. Obviously, uh, two things, three things really to look at in preseason. One, coaching tendencies, what coaches like to win in preseason, what coaches don't care. Um, You know, some coaches like Belichick and Zimmer just, you know, want to win, period. Uh, Other coaches, not so much. So you want to look at the coaching tendencies. You want to look at the quarterback rotations, all things being equal, on the back end of your rotation, you love a scrambling quarterback because when all hell breaks loose and teams don't know what to do offensively, the quarterback can always tuck it and run, and it does seem like the defense plays it much more by the book, stays with their receivers, so they're wide open to the scrambling quarterback to create problems for them um, if if the quarterback is indeed willing to run. And then the third aspect of preseason, the situational – spot for the teams, Um, specifically if a team gets blown away in week one, probably a good bet to back them then in week two. And I do like, um, historically in preseason, one of the trends I always liked was selectively playing an 0-1 team against a 1-0 team, especially if that 0-1 team was on the road because if they – preseason, the home field advantage really isn't worth very much. And much more significant would be the fact that a team 0 one wants to win Game 2. That's been historically a very profitable situation, backing 0-1-1 straight-up teams against 1-0 teams. So I certainly would look at that. Week 2 then typically becomes my the week I wager the most. I'm curious, McKenzie, with only three weeks of preseason instead of four weeks, and the format is going to be three weeks of preseason, and then we're going to have basically a bye week before the real season starts I um as far as the dress rehearsals do you think teams are going to do week 3 for the dress rehearsal or will some of them just say nah I'm only going to have two weeks um I would lean towards the week 3 the final week of preseason to be the dress rehearsal would you agree
0: Yes I would because of what you just mentioned that week off which I actually didn't know that's actually a really I think innovative feature by the NFL why have four, why have, why trot them out one more time when everybody's just worried about getting hurt Have that week off where you can do practice and and shell work and all that stuff they like to do.
1: Yeah, I hated to see that week off. I saw the Baltimore Ravens have their last two games in preseason on the road, and then they open three of four
0: on the road to start the NFL season. And I'm like, oh, five road games in six weeks. (laughs) So you were anticipating that they would have a terrible situation and that you could profit from it. I was already
1: circled my game of the year, Denver, week four. the Baltimore at Denver, and then I'm like, oh, I'll still probably like Denver, but it won't be as good because obviously that week off before the season starts is going to mitigate whether you play a couple road games, you know, before that. Let's talk the Rams a little bit. Impact on injuries: Cam Akers, they're starting running back goes down. Henderson becomes the starting running back. I'm sure he'll be he'll be running back by committee. They'll probably pick somebody else else up. How significant is that? So. Cam Akers is one of about, you know, 50 to 75 players that uh, I have valued as half a point. That might even be slightly low, actually, because he's a borderline top 10 running back, which would probably make him worth like two-thirds of a point. We'll call it half a point, though, to be conservative over a 17-game season. That's eight and a half points that the Rams are going to lose out on. And value, 35 points, if you do the math, is worth one win. So if you lose 8.5 points, you're essentially losing a quarter of a win. Uh, when we price our NFL season wins, half a win is worth – I know there's a whole lot of math here, so you can go back and listen, but half a win is worth just under $0.50. Cents. I'm calling it $0.45. Cents. So the Cam Akers injury, I have worth $0.22, cents, meaning if the Rams over-under win total had been 10.5, minus 110 in each direction, you'd have to shade to the under, minus 132. Um, that's the math behind Cam Akers. What's the key here is that now the Rams have a problem at running back, which is fine. They've got Henderson. Maybe they can bolster it. But if they get another injury or they start to get cluster injuries at running back, that's where it can really have a significant impact of much more than just decimal points on their season win. So the Rams, a team that's not deep, suddenly becomes much more vulnerable, and we have to be very careful looking at that running back rotation and what may transpire if they do have more injuries. One of my favorite things to do, McKenzie, spot a team that has a horrible cluster injuries at one spot. Would you agree?
0: Yes. Yes. I mean, I remember listening years ago and I was just a fan of the dream pod. You guys were talking about the Chargers cluster injuries going to Detroit. And what was interesting about what that conversation that day was that it's not just that their offensive line or defensive backs or whatever are or have cluster injuries, but the coaches are spread thin or have to focus in inordinate amount on that specific group coaching up a sixth round running back or something saying you're, you're going to have to play major minutes in year one. So yeah, cluster injuries is definitely something to look at with the Rams and McVay. I, I think he has, he, you know, from the Shanahan tree, I got to say, I think he's going to be able to find a way to get a decent running back in there, whether it's Adrian Peterson or Daryl Henderson doing most of it. But um, what's interesting is Cam Akers was only a, like a 69 on PFF. He gets a lot of love, but the pro football focus guys said he was about average. So it'll be interesting to see uh, Daryl Henderson, a great fantasy pickup probably, you know, with the Acres news.
1: Yeah, what do those pro football-focused people know. They got Tom Brady ranked number two. My, <laughs> eye t- my eye test said that Cam Akers was clearly the superior running back, and that's all that really should be important. You know, in terms of cluster injuries, let me give an, a story. Uh, back when I, was, I used to work for Transamerica in Los Angeles in terms of cluster injuries, so we had a client that was unhappy with us. And oftentimes I was called in to save relationships like that because I'm supposedly good at this. And I was good at <laughs> And so I go and meet with this client, and we're having problems with another client where I have to do this conference call um, that to appease some of the things, the disappointments they had. But I'm first first I'm meeting with this client that is unhappy with us. And this is before cell phones and the like. And the the meeting isn't going well. We're we're not gonna retain this client. And I told the client beforehand, um, hey, I do need I do need you to have a conference room ready for me because I do have to take this call from eleven to twelve. Um and, you know, after a meeting's over and they said that that's fine. And like, so I, I was thinking about talking about being spread too thin. So I have one client that's like completely unhappy with me and would like nothing better to like, don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> and um, they're having to put me into a conference room where I'm talking to another client that I'm trying to keep happy. And I'm like, boy, I'm, I'm just juggling all these plates. And in the meantime, <laughs> you know, there's all this other work that I'm supposed to be getting done. That's just sitting piling up on my desk back in the, uh, in the home office in downtown L.A. So uh, kind of hard to address all those issues when uh, you've got so much going on. So you said, screw it. Let me handicap. Let me fly to Vegas and just make money the easy way, right? I said, darn it. Mark Calball, you take care of it. <laughs> Who's that? Uh, he, he's, an, he's an actuary. He was a very, very good guy. Oh, of course, the
0: actuary, Mark Helb. Mark,
1: uh, yeah. Mark, Mark Helb. He, well, he's a, he <laughs> was similar to me. that He was an actuary with the personality as well. So I wish all the I haven't spoken with Mark in a long time, but he's a great, great guy. Um, let's go ahead. And and by the way, when I worked for Transamerica, um, my former boss, Richard Weinstein, was like, Richard was just tremendous um, pretty much at everything because we had, as you can imagine, in the high – higher echelons of any company. You've got some real, you know, type A's and high achievers. And Richard was uh, able to keep everybody calm and collected icy calm and uh, just did a great job of, um, you know, the, the team concept and the like. So shout out to Richard who's long since retired and um, the, um, you know, was just a a joy to work with um, and the like. So, let me talk about where were we? I'm I'm a little off track. We were talking about NFL preseason.
0: Yeah. Um we were talking about Cam Akers and the Rams and his impact. And I don't want to throw shade at Cam Akers. I was mentioning his pro football focus grade. Saquon Barkley in his best season was like a 72. So they have a very strict, very high curve for running backs, apparently, at pro football focus. Obviously, if you took Saquon Barkley off the Giants, the Vegas market, which I think is sharper than the pro football focus market, would adjust for the Giants. So Cam Akers is a big deal losing him without a clear backup. Give
1: me an update, and if you need a minute, let me know on Saquon Barkley because now the talk is he was saying, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be ready to go week one. And so has, I don't think there's been any adjustment in the week one line. I do have a healthy Barkley worth a point to the line, but that is um, certainly concerning. Any update on where we are with Saquon Barkley?
0: Yeah. Barkley was saying, I'm not going to come back if I'm less than 110%, you know, trying to tamper it down expectations. Interesting. At that moment, when he said that he had the fifth highest rushing total of any running back on DraftKings. I just checked right now, a day later, they don't have the total up. So that would have been a good under if you could have got in under 1,100. If he misses a few games, obviously that's going to be a good bet.
1: Yeah. And, I'm, you know, I love running back injuries in terms of, and just changes that there will certainly be some teams that are going to announce hey, running back by committee instead of having a clear number one. And if you got running back by committee, you're not going to get 1,100 yards. Now, I'm not saying that's the case with Barkley, but um, you know, certainly that could well be the case um, with some of these NFL teams in terms of the usage and the plans they're going to have for their starting running backs. You know, As we're betting these things, and I certainly use the apps as much as I can around town, but the apps oftentimes have low limits, I thought I'd go ahead and comment on my favorite sports books to wager around town. Mackenzie, I came up with a quick list here um, of my top five
0: sports books that I like to bet on around town. Awesome. I just want to say parenthetically, this is a question I get all the time. So a definitive list from the number one gambler I know. Can't wait to hear it. All right, so number one, this is no particular order, my top five,
1: downtown Circa Sportsbook. Uh, love everything they're doing. Love all their contests. Uh, just a um, tremendous facility in downtown Las Vegas. And, of course, with the um, Circa swim, Stadium Swim, just um, put it on your bucket list. Got to do it. Uh, Westgate is the old granddaddy of the sportsbooks, the cavernous Westgate park in the back on off Joe W. Brown, and uh they obviously with the super contest near and dear to my heart. So gotta put the Westgate right there. Um The Win, a little boutique sports book. Yes, they don't really like sharps. Yes, sometimes they won't give you that big of a limit, but the win has really grown on me. I love the whole facility, so I would certainly put that on the list. This one's gonna be a little controversial. I'm gonna go Mandalay Bay just because you know the the Mirage and the Bellagio. And the ARIA all have nice sports books. I need one MGM place to bet. And the Mandalay Bay is the easiest one for me to get in. As I'm zipping in from Henderson, I go on, oh, gosh, I think it's Dean Martin Drive, whatever the um, the backway road is that runs adjacent to I-15 and spills me right out, first stop into the Mandalay Bay parking lot. So, boom, Mandalay Bay goes to that list in terms of places to bet and convenience. And then two places close to me. Uh, Green Valley Ranch in Henderson, and certainly the South Point. One thing I always liked about the South Point, they separate their race book from their sports book, which I think is really nice because most sports bettors I know don't like the race bettors anyways, and vice versa. So go ahead and separate those two that don't play nice. You know I like the South Point a lot because they don't let me bet anymore, and I'm still putting them on the list. So they must be doing something right for me to go ahead and have them in my what is now, I guess, my top six list here.
0: So the South Point won't be included in this question, but if there were one of those sports books that backed you off that said you're making too much money with us, which one would hurt your bottom line the most? Let me think about that. I realize that answering this question might be uh, contrary to what you uh, <laughs> want to get out there into the public. You know, if you say this place, I'm making a lot of money at, maybe they'll back you off. So you don't have to answer that well, question.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I I think I'll answer it by saying the places that have backed me off historically have been the places I have made the most money, like the you know the William Hills, and uh, and the like. So um, because of that. Um, You want to play, if you're a recreational better. that's a great question. Where do you want to play? Well, you want to play against the squarest books, the places that cater the most to the recreational betters and don't take big bets from the Sharps. And that means you want to play against William Hill. You want to play against uh, Treasure Island. Stations, casinos. Golden Nugget. Exactly. Because why would you want to play against, like, the Westgate? And why would you want to play against Circa? Well, I want to play against them because they let me bet and they'll give me good limits, but you don't. they won't give me really soft numbers necessarily unless I could find some props and the like, and if you're just a recreational bettor, you want to play where the numbers are the most often. In fact, oftentimes I hear people like evaluating a sports book, like there's, they put up a sports book in Colorado, and someone, the reviewer said, oh, really like this sports book, they do a great job, and I did check their lines, and I— I'm really happy their lines are completely in sync with what I see at other books. You know, that's a real positive. And I'm like, that reviewer has no idea what they're talking about. You know, that's you don't want uniformity. You want a book that's completely screwing the little guy and and going out and dealing the Rams eight week one, hosting the Bears instead of seven, because that's the book you're going to be able to beat the hell out of, you know, that is dealing big and catering to the recreational betters. Now, interestingly, I mentioned my top six sports books I like to go. I think there may be a little bias here because in terms of just casinos that I like, and I think the win certainly this falls into. If I really like the casino, I have to say I like the sports book more as well. So I think that that's part of the reason that the win, certainly, made the list. And, you know, same with Green Valley Ranch. Like in terms of all the station casinos, the Red Rock and, and the Green Valley Ranch, there's a lot to like about those properties and um, the amenities that they offer as well.
2: Don't know about the future. That's anybody's guess. Ain't no good reason for getting all depressed. Buy up your pad and pencil. I give you a piece of my mind.
1: Olympics, best bet, USA gold medals. I'm going under 46 and a half. Not going to like this. you got to lay minus 230 on this bet.
0: Wait a minute, wait a minute. So not only are you saying bet against the U.S., but you're saying lay the lumber? (laughs) Absolutely. And this is
1: one of the sharpest moves that we have seen. Uh, USA, the last two Olympics, they got 46 in London, 46 in Rio. The books open 46 and a half. I imagine there's a few more events this year number looks right. Well, I think the number's wrong, and so does the marketplace. And I might add, whenever I see something like this, a really sharp move that's anti to what the American betting public wants, you would think they'd want to bet over Great. on gold Great. medals. And you're seeing a tsunami of money under those bets always seem to win. It's almost like a national anthem type of situation where how long's the anthem gonna be? Well, people already know. They already know the U.S. is gonna underperform. In these Olympics, let me make a case for why they're going to underperform. It's all about venue. The Olympics are in Japan. And so the last two Olympics, well, Rio is not ideal. It's not like it's in Atlanta or L.A. But nevertheless, you're staying in the Americas. You're staying close to home in terms of the time zones. Uh, And the Olympics before weren't in London. Now, you do have to travel a little bit, but um, in terms of, you know, Cultural differences, food differences, and the like, um, culture, um, travel. London's a pretty easy gig in terms of an Olympics for anybody in the U.S. So let's contrast. Let's 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 go back to the three before that: China, Australia, and Athens. All right, Athens probably would be the best of the three, but all three of those you can see a lot more travel, a lot more differences in terms of. Um, you know, getting accustomed to the country, et cetera. In those three Olympics, the U.S. chalked 36, 36, and 37 golds. So I can say there's a clear-cut pattern. If I go back the year before, um, to 19, back to 1996 when it was in Atlanta, the USA got 44. So the USA's got an average 45 gold medals in the three good venues for them. I, I guess you could argue Rio was kind of neutral, but I'm going I'm to go ahead and say it was good. And in the three venues that were not favorable, the USA has averaged 36.3 gold medals, 10 gold medals less, basically, close to 10 gold medals less. Best bet Olympics, USA gold medals under 46.5, minus 230. If the bet doesn't win, track me down in Vegas. I will show me a ticket that lost, and I will buy you dinner if this one doesn't win. Best bet USA under 46.5
0: gold medals. My man, good stuff. All right. That was the great Steve Fezzik giving you a best bet like he does. Next up, another best bet, Diamond Dave Esler diving deep into college football. He's going to go with a season win bet on a certain SEC team. Let's check it out. I love and I bet the Florida Gators under nine wins this season. This Gator
2: team ended last season with three straight losses, two at home, and then was smoked by the Sooners in the Cotton Bowl. This is a Gator offense that loses the first non-quarterback drafted in Kyle Pitts, their top wide receiver in the first round, and their starting quarterback drafted in the second round. That leaves this year's quarterback on the depth chart, starting as Emory Jones, who attempted all of 32 passes last year, and half of those were in the Cotton Bowl blowout against the Sooners. Behind Jones on the depth chart is not one, not two, but three freshmen, so God forbid he gets hurt. Last year's Gator defense allowed almost 31 points per game in those last three losses, surrendered an average of 48 points. And that defense had three starters drafted. So they do have a ton to replace on both sides of the ball. And that's borne out by the fact that they are 108th out of 127 teams in returning production and 125th in offensive returning production. Once again, they play Alabama, at LSU, obviously Georgia, at South Carolina, who I do think will be tough at home, and at Missouri, who's also earmarked for an upgrade this season. I'm putting Dan Mullen on the hot seat, not because of his record, but the expectations in Gainesville. This is at best a nine-win team, and I'm betting eight Gators under
0: nine wins. As Diamond Dave outlined, 31 points per game allowed by the Florida Gators. Not exactly what you want to see, especially when you look at the offensive side and you lost Kyle Pitts, maybe one of the great tight end prospects ever entering the NFL. And, of course, Kyle Trask, the quarterback, Not going to be there either. So it's going to be a tough season for the Florida Gators football team. As far as the wise and powerful Diamond Dave Esler is concerned. Next up, the NBA Finals just happened, but we look ahead. Giannis, 50 points, five blocks. Come on. Wow. Never happened in any NBA playoff game, let alone finals game, any NBA playoff game. No one had ever had 50 points and five blocks. He did it in the finals clincher. The closest, by the way, was Hakeem, the dream Olajuwon. He had 49 points and five blocks, but not 50. Giannis, the first player ever with 50 points and five blocks. And how did he do it? Free throw shooting. Best free throw shooting of the season for Giannis 17 of 19, 89%. Never had any game with more than 10 attempts with a better percentage than that this season. And we thought about it. What were the odds of that? You know, we, there were a few tidbits that we want not actually get into here. We want to have time to get into. But this one this one was a, was a quite a find, looking at Giannis's free throw attempts and just saying, hey, he was 56% through about 18 playoff games entering the Game 6 versus the Suns. If he shot 56% on average, if that was his projection— What would we think the chances are that he would do what he did Tuesday night and go 17 for 19 from the free throw line? We looked into it. One in 500. One in 500 that Giannis would shoot that well if it were random. I don't think it were random. I think the man is a baller. He was ready for the moment. He was cool, calm, and collected when it mattered most. And if you ask me, yeah, I'd probably pick him number one, age considered, of any NBA player right now. But enough from me. Let's get into the guys. Jonas Knox and R.J. Bell chopped up this question about who would you pick if you redrafted the entire NBA.
3: Okay, Jonas, redrafting the NBA, you, who goes ahead of Giannis?
0: Oh man,
4: um, I would say I, I'd still take Durant at his age. Yeah, I would oh. take uh, I would take Durant, and I don't know that there's anybody who, who else, else like...
3: would you consider.
4: I mean, I would consider, jeez. Uh, I mean, like Jokic? Part, maybe Luka. Luka? Maybe Jokic. Uh,
3: but, I mean, but I don't, even younger.
4: Yeah, and I, I think they're in the conversation, but the only guy that I would take right now ahead of Dur- ahead of uh, Giannis for sure would be Kevin Durant.
3: So, I mean, what is Giannis, like five years younger and and, and- – doesn't get hurt even when his knee looks like it's going to snap. It doesn't really faze yeah. him.
4: I mean, and- he's definitely closed the gap for sure uh, on on whatever conversation anybody wants to have about him and and where he stands ranking wise in the NBA. Like he did himself a lot of favors this postseason. No as far doubt as closing that.
3: I personally would take Giannis first, and here's why. And and to me, Durant wouldn't even be in the conversation because of the age. Yeah. And with to me with Luca, you got a guy who, you know, when he gets mad at someone, it, it seems yeah. like he clears out the front office. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and who wants to play with him? And if we're, you know, not I'm not saying nobody does. I'm saying okay, there's going to be some ambivalence If you're an elite player, you're going to get to shoot much. You're going to get the ball. Much. To me, Giannis could attract if he was in a different, you know, who knows, right? In the future, but. If you're a Durant, if you're a Luke, like how bad, Luka would want to play with Giannis, I think, if he was smart, a lot more than Giannis wants to play with Luka. I think that being that that guy that's going to be in the trenches and do all the, you know, like the Scotty Pippen, if you got Pippen who's better than Pippen, he's a freak, then if you're Jordan or you want to be Jordan, Giannis is your guy. So I think if you're building a team, by taking him first, it makes that team so much more desirable, I think, than taking Luca first. So you can make the case that when it comes to on court, maybe it's a, a toss-up. And obviously, Luca's younger.
0: Mackenzie, same question. Where do you put uh, Giannis in, in your draft, age considered? He's number one for me. The only consideration would be Luca, who's five years younger. Kevin Durant, six years older. I think he's a better player, but that takes him out of the conversation for me. One thing about Giannis, just this step blew my mind. 48% of the Bucks' points he scored last night. The only person to ever surpass that in a closeout game, Michael Jordan, you probably know the game, 1998 game six. Ooh, he was pretty good in that game. If,
3: for the kids out there, <laughs> watch the end of that one, because there was a point with like a minute and a half left. It was a huge long shot the Bulls would win. Then they'd be playing game seven in Utah and they would have been about pick them. I remember the lines in those games. Ooh, that would have been a tough one. It would have been Jordan's only game seven. Six titles, never
0: played a seventh game.
3: Giannis, one title, never played a seventh game in the finals.
0: Next up from Straight Out of Vegas, we dived into the saga that is Aaron Rodgers. Will he, won't he return to the Green Bay Packers? Check it out from Straight Out of Vegas.
4: News came out, RJ, earlier today, according to Adam Schefter. This was sent out on Twitter that uh, this offseason, the Packers offered Aaron Rodgers a two-year contract extension. It would have tied him to Green Bay for five more seasons and made him the highest paid quarterback and player in football. Uh, Schefter went on to say Rodgers declined the offer, proof that it's not about the money.
3: And just more evidence of the rampant disrespect the Green Bay shows. Oh, wait, that doesn't make sense. Um <laughs> It strikes me that I've heard more disdain, more kind of anti-Aaron Rodgers in the last couple weeks on the various shows, TV and radio, than I've heard for any player that hasn't done. In fact, I think I've heard more anti-Aaron Rodgers than Deshaun Watson.
4: Uh, <laughs> like, seriously yeah yeah no that's fair yeah and i
3: think to give other shows credit is i think it's just they and probably rightfully so until you know this is a situation where until the facts are in it probably isn't great with deshaun watson to overly speculate so but but really you would think because deshaun watson was so loved before this it seemed that that the people are being really slow to react, though if someone wasn't as loved, maybe there'd be some more speculation. I think that's fair to say. But Aaron Rodgers and his California cool, his haughtiness... I got to tell you something. It feels like everyone's against, or not everyone, a lot are against him. Is that the temperature you feel in the in the media generally? And how, how about with fans? Because you take a lot of callers on your weekend shows, right?
4: Uh, 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 no, I try not to. Oh, I thought you well, did. I, the no, drunk
3: callers on the yeah,
4: no? they're usually drunk, so you can't you can't trust them. They say stuff, and and I don't want to lose my job over some guy uh, getting after it a little bit. But no, I I just think there's a feeling of real fatigue. People people are, are are tired of the story. Like we had fatigue over the Dak Prescott contract extension story, but it was different because that was that wasn't really Dak's doing per se. They were in a negotiation, and I think everybody understood that. There's it was, fatigue. It was multiple years. Yeah, and, and there were and there was a lot to it. And then you know uh, you know him suffering the injury and just sort of all of that stuff, and and then paying other players. So you could understand both sides. This feels like there is definitely a fatigue of hey, are you playing or not? Because the, the money's there, the contract's there, you've been paid. This isn't a guy trying to get his first contract. It's not a, it's not a player trying to prove what he's worth to an organization. And so when you see that he's, he's not willing to really speak on it or commit yet, but he's willing to go play in a couple of golf tournaments uh, and, and make the rounds and be sort of vague and passive-aggressive via interviews, I think there's been a lot of fatigue from a, from a fan perspective uh, in just seeing
3: this whole story play out. And, he, you know, I think there is an analogy to Deshaun Watson before the accusations and the the court cases and the civil cases specifically with the masseuses and such was recall before that it was a sense of, hey, I want out of here. And a lot of people were way you know, totally behind Watson. It was like, yeah, that O'Brien was a bad GM. He traded you know, nuke away. So it makes sense he shouldn't honor his contract, even though he signed it like three months before. But then some people, and and I think we were part of that, or at least I I think you were, but I know I was. And and I'll let you, you know, tell me. But. We were saying, yeah, but what has changed from the time he signed the contract? If you go back and say, well, I don't like this and that and this, and it was from three years before and two years before, and the owner who or former owner who's deceased and who you could have said, and I think some people, or at least the feeling was there were some racially insensitive remarks, and I'm not questioning that. I'm saying I'm not in a position to judge exactly how insensitive it was, but a lot of people felt like it was, and... You could say that that all adds up and finally you reach your tipping point. But when you sign a new contract and cash a big monster check and put that advance in your bank account and then you say, I went out of here, it only seems fair that the, a- the actions since the contract are pertinent. That you forgave the other ones because that's why you re-signed the contract. You didn- weren't forced to do that. You chose it. You recommitted Right, if two, if a couple has trouble because the guy cheats on her, uh, let's say a married couple, and then they renew their vows, and then a week later she wants to get divorced, it's kind of hard for it to be saying, well, it was because he cheated on me. Now, I, maybe she, I'm not saying she doesn't have a right to, but I'm saying logically you would say, well, when you renewed the vows, you kind of forgave that. It seems to me that it didn't make a ton of sense that there could have been such egregiousness against Watson from the time of that new contract, or at least if there were, we need to hear about it if we want, if, if the public should support you. Though it didn't require that for some reason, I thought it, sh- it should. To me, Aaron Rodgers did not complain during the season. He played hard. He had one of the greatest, and listen, I've been a detractor of Rodgers on the field for years now. He was amazing. Then he wasn't. For multiple years, he was far from amazing. Last year, he was amazing. So I, I don't even want to waste my energy trying to say otherwise. But at what point did these egregious things happen? Because when it was in the locker room, and he's saying the beautiful mystery and all that stuff after the loss, one, that that shows a lot of disrespect to the loss itself. I mean, at some point, like commiserate with your teammate I mean to put that wedge in there right away rub me the wrong way but number 2 when did all this stuff happen and to me when he was asked about it on ESPN I can't remember the fellow he was having his last sports center or something is he it was you know vague talk it was vague talk and it strikes me that if it was drafting a quarterback if that's what this is about then say it and we can all judge it but if it's supposedly about something else, we have seen zero evidence of that. And it should be, the evidence should be after the time that he played hard and said nothing. Now, maybe you could say, well, he was a, tro- a trooper and he played hard till the end of the season. This happened at the draft. So if somehow he thought the season was sanctified and he wasn't going to mess with it, then why did he mess with it this year right after the draft one year later? So, you know, you read a lot more of the behind the scenes stuff than I do. Do you have any sense of what it is other the Aaron Rodgers problem other than Jordan Love was drafted?
4: Uh, no, I, I don't have any any sense of it. Um, I, the only thing my, my guess would be Mark Murphy, the president there in Green Bay, that, that maybe he's got something against him, that this is some bad blood there. But other than that, I think it's all a guessing game at this point.
0: Thank you all for listening to the Dream Preview. The NFL offseason is coming to an end edition of the Dream Preview podcast. This is just the beginning, guys. It is the slow season. It is the offseason. We are about to get rocking and rolling something serious. Tell me if you've heard of these luminaries in our industry before. A.J. Hoffman. He'll be making his way to Las Vegas in the next couple weeks. Sleepy J. You might have seen him on the pregame forums. A legend on the pregame forums. Sleepy J, he will get his butt to Las Vegas in the next couple weeks. We are going to be launching a huge NFL season, best we've ever done, and the pregame podcast network will be starting in earnest. We will be gearing it up, giving you guys great content, great picks, great voices, different voices, different ideas, make you the sharpest Individual, the sharpest, better that you can be. Elevate all our games together. Pre game connect before you bet. Thank you for listening. Check you next week.